If you have your Bibles, um, take them out and turn with me to John, the 20th chapter. We're almost there, right? We've almost finished it. We've done what they said couldn't be done. We've finished the book of John in two years. (laughs) I don't know who said it couldn't be done, but somebody maybe did. That's what they said, the opposite. There's no way you could preach two years on the book of John, but we've done it. By God's grace, we've done it. I hope that it's been good. I always say this, like, where else would we go? What else would we talk about than Jesus, especially this morning? That what begins in, in Genesis, after man's disobedience, God shows up and he levies the curse. And to the serpent, Satan, God says this to him. He says a, a prophetic word. It's the first mention of the gospel in all of the Bible. I mean, it's a couple pages in, right? And yet this is what God says. He says to, serpent, to the serpent, he says that there's coming an offspring of a woman and he's gonna crush your head. He says, you're gonna bruise his heel, but you're gonna crush his head. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the heel bruising that come from Jesus's suffering around his death, his suffering in being flogged, his suffering in carrying the cross, his beard being plucked from his face. We could go on. His suffering and being nailed to a cross, his suffering and his death, his suffering and the shame and going and laying in a tomb. But this morning, good news, right? We get to talk about head crushing time and the great hope that we have because of what has occurred on this first day of the week. John chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you grab one of those pew Bibles. It's page 906. We're just going to be looking at the first 10 verses this morning. It is the, what we would call the Easter message. And it starts, um, goes like this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus, which had been on Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and he believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Jesus, huh? We haven't even got to them seeing you yet in the text and we feel the anticipation and we feel the excitement of just an empty tomb. Help us with fresh eyes look upon that. 
that many people in this room have been celebrating this truth and hearing this passage or maybe from another gospel account for multiple years. But Lord, may it have new power to us as we think about it this morning. No matter how many times we've heard the Easter message of your resurrection, may it have resurrecting power for us. May we, Lord, place our hope and our faith in you. May we know that whatever we have believed in the life that we live is being secured by you, by you, the resurrected and living Christ. May we just have faith in you and may we know that our faith is not in vain because you have been resurrected from the tomb, that the tomb is empty. To you go all praise and glory and honor and dominion and authority and power forever and ever. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. I wanna get into some application that this has for us, um, and we'll look at that in just a few minutes, but first let's just dive into the narrative. So keep your Bible out, we'll kind of walk through um, the events in the narrative. We'll break it down kind of into two sections. The first section I wanna look at, um, I've kind of entitled, The New Creation Has Its Day. I want you to notice that it, um, John mentions, now it was the first day of the week. And that's why we're here on Sunday, because Sunday is the first day of the week. That Sunday, the week begins with Sunday and it actually ends on, on Saturday, even though this is like the part of the weekend, but this, for, especially in the Jewish culture, this was considered the first day of the week. This wouldn't be their day of worship, although it is our day of worship, because this is the day Jesus was resurrected from the tomb, their day of worship would have happened on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Now, I don't believe that our Sunday worship negates the Sabbath. I mean, there still is, I think, a day in the creative order for us to rest, just the day for us of worship doesn't occur on the Saturday, on the Sabbath. Our day of worship begins on Sunday. It's not by accident that it is on a Sunday, that it is the first day of the week because Jesus has just finished what Adam began. The work that Adam began, the work of disobedience and the work of rebellion, Jesus has finished it on the last day of the week on Friday. He finished that work that Adam began in the garden of sin and disobedience and rebellion. Jesus has finished it on the cross and then Jesus has rested on the Sabbath day, if you will. He has rested in the tomb and now is the first day of the week. And Jesus has now resurrected as the first fruits of the new, uh, of the new resurrection, of the new creation. Jesus has, re- has been resurrected as the new creation that has walked out of the garden. What began in a garden has now ended in an, in an old creation has now begun again in a garden on a Sunday, on the first day of the week. And every Sunday we gather together to remember that, to remember and to celebrate not just Jesus's resurrection, but all that Jesus's resurrection means for us. That Jesus's resurrection means that we are part of this new creation, those of us who believe in Jesus. That just as in the creation account, it is on, the, on Sunday, In the creation account in Jesus, when God made light and he separated it from the darkness, we gather together on the first day of the week to celebrate the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That light of the gospel has separated you and I from the darkness of sin and from the darkness of this world. And for those of us here who the separation has occurred, we are part of Jesus's new creation. And we'll get to that 
um, later. So that's the first thing I want us to make note of is the new creation has its day. It's begun in Jesus. Number two is that the empty tomb and no Jesus. There is present as evidence of Jesus's resurrection. There is an empty tomb that just like in the first creation, nobody was there to, to actually witness the creation occur. We only see effects and evidences of the creation. In the same way in this new creation, we see evidences and effects of that new creation, but nobody is there to actually see Jesus be resurrected out of the tomb. No one sees him walk out of the tomb. No one sees him come to life. We only see the effects of that and the effects are sufficient. I'm not saying that that we should question whether or not it happens. We see it here through an empty tomb and then later on as we'll, we'll get into the text in the next couple of weeks that we'll see a post-resurrected Jesus and now alive, glorified Christ in bodily form. But let's dive down into the text. Mary Magdalene, who was present uh, at Jesus's crucifixion. It's a woman that the Bible says that Jesus cast demons out of her. She's a follower of Christ. She's accompanied by another Mary, James's mom, and Salome. And they're going to the garden tomb early in the morning. They're going there to add more spices and so more uh, incense, if you will, onto Jesus's grave clothes. And so we talked about just uh, whatever it was, I don't know, last week or maybe the week before that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they've wrapped Jesus into into uh, linen cloths. As they wrapped him, they've used 75 pounds. I mean, that's a lot, right? 75 pounds of spices and aloes. As they, as they would wrap a layer, they would just, you know, uh, kind of impregnate all of that with all of this, uh, fill it full of all these spices as to kind of help to combat decomposition. And so now it's the third day decomposition they're believed to have set in. And so they're going there that morning with this purpose. The purpose is, is to add probably maybe fresh linen cloths. They're going there certainly to add, as scripture says, they're going there to add more spices for what would be normally a decomposite, a, a, a corpse that was decomposing. But as they get there, they notice something. When they arrive, they see that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. Now, the stone that is there that is over the tomb, that's not something that's, um, that's that, that would have been something that would have been common. In fact, um, all the way as like 1993, I had the opportunity to go to, uh, to go to Israel, to go to the city of Jerusalem. I know others of you have, have been on trips like that one to go to the Holy Land. And there's a couple of places where they believe that maybe the garden tomb or the tomb is. There's one that historically has been kind of remembered. It's called a place now called the Church of the Sepulchre. But around the late 1800s, there was a, a guy by the name of General Charles uh, Gordon, who first, what he did was he spotted a, um, a, a rock. And as he noticed this rock edifice, this cliff, as he spotted it, he noticed that it looked like a, like, like a skull on the face of it. And of course, like Golgotha is called the place of the skull. He noticed that. And then he also, as he began to do some research, he found out that there was actually a garden there at one time. I think there's a olive press that they found and there was a, you know, um, evidence of a, of, a, of a well being there. And so there's a garden. And then he found a tomb inside that, like in that tomb, as they did archaeology and they looked around, there's a, outside of the tomb, there's a channel that runs outside of that tomb. In that channel, there would have been a large stone would have been placed there. Like I said, that was common. That wasn't something that was, you know, extraordinary. Maybe it was extraordinary for not common folk, maybe had something really nice. 
You know, just like as you go to a, uh, as you go to a cemetery, there's folks, common folks that get just like put in the ground and they just get a little marker, but other folks get like a big, nice, you know, deal. Some people get put in a mausoleum that costs bucks, you know? And the same way in this time, if you want a fancy tomb, it costs some money. Now we know Joseph of Arimathea, the one whose tomb Jesus lays in, he's a wealthy man. And in fact, Gordon, what's called Gordon's tomb, when you go into it, something that's remarkable is, is that there's the, you can see where the tomb was cut for a person, made for a person, and then it's been like roughly hewn out, chiseled out for somebody that was larger. So whoever was laid in this tomb was bigger than the person that it was originally made for, which we would believe would be Jesus. Jesus is laid into a borrowed tomb not his own tomb, not one made. And so that's kind of the, the setup. There's this, tomb, there's this stone that's been placed there. Now, like I said, it's common to put a stone there all the way even back into when you see Lazarus uh, in, what was that, John chapter 11, 10 or 11? When we were there, there was a stone placed in front of Lazarus' tomb. What's not common is one thing that uh, John leaves out, something that John omits. And that is that, first of all, they seal up the tomb. Like with Lazarus is just, a stone is laid there. But here it says they sealed it up. So maybe they mixed up some mortar, maybe they mixed up some concrete, you know, put some concrete or some mortar around it to seal it up. The second thing that isn't common is the Jews are concerned because they remember Jesus talking about raising from the dead. They're concerned that the disciples are gonna break in and steal the body. And so what the, they go, the Jews go to the Romans and say, hey, do something about this. And so they send a Roman guard to camp out at the face of the tomb. Now, when John or when the ladies show up that morning, it's nothing about the guards. Like what happened to the guards? Where are they? Well, Matthew tells us that what has occurred is there's been an isolated earthquake at the time of the resurrection has occurred. And can you imagine those jokers camped out? And again, like we're talking, you know, we're not talking about, uh, what was the old black and white, F Troop? Was that the name of the old black and white? Uh, there was a comedy that you can now watch on Nick at Night that was called F Troop. And it was about these bunch of misfits, right? We're not talking about F Troop camped out here. We're talking about like Roman centurion, Roman guards, right? That's what we're talking about. Think about the gladiator, the movie. That's what we're talking about. These guys are camped out and all of a sudden an isolated earthquake and then an angel of God descends. Now, when these jokers see this angel of God, they pass out, out of fear. Some folks go like, hey, I think I saw an angel. I'm like, I don't know. Was you awake, you know, when you saw it? But all through the Bible, when an angel shows up, the next, the first words of the angel's mouth is fear not, right? But nevertheless, they're there. The angels don't tell them to fear not. They're out cold and the angels roll the stone back. Now they don't roll the stone back to let Jesus out. Jesus didn't need them to roll the stone back so that he could come out. They roll the stone back so that when the women show up and the disciples show up, they can see in. But Jesus, by then, I, they roll it back. Jesus comes out. Maybe Jesus is gone already. The Roman guards, they come awake and they hightail it back to the, uh, to the Jews and the Romans to tell them, hey, this is what's happened. Jesus says, he's gone. We don't know what happened to him. We got knocked out. You know, we saw an angel, whatever their story was. And it's even in that story, I think it's Matthew that tells them that on the spot, the Jews say, well, listen, here's the story you need to tell go ahead and go spread the news that the disciples stole the body so that no one would believe in the resurrection. We still even see evidences of that happening. But when Mary and the Marys and Salome, when they show up, they, the stone is gone, the guards are gone, and there's no Jesus. 
And so what they do is they run back to the city as well. They show up and they find Simon Peter. And as we say in the scripture, as John refers to himself again, as the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I love that, that John calls himself that. Now that sounds a little bit like what we call a humble brag, doesn't it? I'm the guy that Jesus loved. But I really don't think that John's intention was anything for brag and to be braggadocious. I think it was really in humility. In fact, as I thought about this this week, written in one of my Bibles that I now own that was my grandfather's Bible, my grandfather had written this in the front of the Bible. He said, I'm just a nobody. I didn't expect that. I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who will love and forgive anybody that will put faith in him. I'm just a nobody that's telling everybody about this somebody who will love and forgive anybody who will believe in him. And I think that's what John is trying to say. I'm just a nobody. And I'm just an eyewitness to this account. I'm just an eyewitness as the one that Jesus has loved. I'm just like you are. I'm just writing down. I'm just the one that gets to tell my story. So it's really less of a brag and more of a, I think, a sign of John's humility. The ladies, when they show up, they tell John and Simon Peter, and this is what they say, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Do you know who they is? That's something that we always say in our home. Like my wife will say, well, they say, and I go, well, who's they? Well, I read it on Facebook, exactly, right? Who's they? And that's what they're saying. Like, hey, they have taken him. And I'm sure John and Simon Peter are like, well, who's they? Who took Jesus? And it also gives evidence to the fact that the disciples probably didn't take him. Let me show about the two leaders of the, of the disciples at this time, John and Simon Peter. And they're not, they, they don't know. They're like, well, we didn't take him. That wasn't our plot. So they must think in their mind that the Jews or maybe the Romans have taken him. So they are, hear this and they're so surprised that they take off running towards the tomb. John mentions that John outruns Simon Peter. He gets to the tomb first. John doesn't go in, but he just stoops to look inside the tomb. And fitting as to Simon Peter's personality, when Simon Peter gets there, Simon Peter just busts right up in the tomb. We see that and he goes in and John notes that the grave clothes, they're lying there, right? They're lying there and the face cloth, the separate piece that would have um, covered Jesus' face, it's now folded. And the significance of this would be that grave robbers, if it would have been somebody of grave robbers, they probably wouldn't, they would have just taken the body. Their job was to be get in and get out and move fast. And why are the grave clothes here? And even the way that uh, in the original language that it's mentioned, it's, it's mentioned that they're, they're laid there orderly. And even the, the, the face cloth is, is folded there. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, had the unpleasant experience of being Rob, but as you know, when people rob stuff, they usually don't leave it very orderly. They ransack it, and that's not occurred. Why would the Romans undo Jesus's body and unroll all of that, all those spices, all that, in order to take the body? And so they know that something is going on. John notes it like this. He says, when John goes into the tomb, this is, you know, again, this is like probably 50 plus years later that John's writing this. He says, when John goes into the tomb, he saw and he believed. Yet, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And this is John's commentary to kind of say that um, I didn't quite understand what resurrection meant, but like I believe that he was resurrected from the dead. It's like um, we, in, in, in my vehicle, when 
in the Mazda that I drive, we listen to old country. In Luann's car that she drives, she listens to modern pop. But in my vehicle, we listen to what my uh, four-year-old affectionately calls cowboy music. That's what we listen to. Uh, Hank, 96.1. We're spiritual like that. And so uh, there's an old song. It's a Barbara Mandrell and uh, George Jones song, uh, I Was Country, When Country Wasn't Cool. You remember that? And what Barbara Mandrell is saying is, I was country. I was into country music before country music was popular. I was listening and jamming and jiving to country music before, I mean, it's like written in the early 1980s, before anybody else was into country music. And that's kind of what John's saying here. I believed in the resurrection before we ever understood that it was necessary to believe in the resurrection. I believed it. I believed that Jesus had been resurrected. It was alive from the, from the dead before we really understood the necessity of believing that the resurrection of Jesus had occurred. And it is a necessity. That Paul will pick up with that in Romans the 10th chapter. He'll say, if anyone confesses with their mouth, if anyone, I'm sorry, if anyone, yeah, um, confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that he has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. There's two things going on here. There's a necessity of confession with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's a theological truth. You believe Jesus is sovereign and Jesus is over everything. And Jesus is in charge of everything. But Jesus is capital L-O-R-D, Lord over all. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He owns everything. Everything is being created by him and for him, including you. You believe that. You confess that with your mouth. And then there's a second truth that gives evidence to his lordship is that he's been resurrected from the dead. And both of those things are necessary for salvation. In fact, you here this morning, you may not yet be saved. You may not yet to have placed faith and trust in Jesus. And you may be saying, what's necessary to be saved? They'll ask that question uh, on the first Christian sermon to ever be preached by the apostle uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. After Peter preaches the gospel to them, they'll reply with, they'll ask the question, what must we do to be saved, Peter? And here's what must be done in order for you to be saved. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Lord over everything, including your life. And you must believe in your heart that he has been resurrected from the dead in order to give evidence to that. You must believe in your heart that Jesus has undergone a bodily resurrection, that he's no longer dead, that it wasn't just some spirit, that he's not some ghost up in the heavenly somewhere, but he is real. His body is real. He is reigning and ruling supreme over all things. That's what must happen in order to be saved. And that's what John is saying here. The Jesus' grave linens are still laying there. They're still laying there in an orderly fashion. They're not ripped to shreds, but they're laying there for him. Let's move into a couple of notes. Um, if, you, if, you wanna, if you're taking notes, you can maybe put them here. Is that these would be truths about Jesus' resurrection. That's what I thought. 19 truths. Just kidding. Just kidding. Four truths of Jesus' resurrection. Truth number one is that Jesus had a unique bodily resurrection. That Jesus went through a unique bodily resurrection. That Jesus' resurrection is unlike any of the other resurrections in the Bible. 
that the other resurrections that we may call resurrections, people that have been raised from the dead, that they were merely resuscitations. They were people that had died and that Jesus, especially the ones in the New Testament, Jesus will raise them from the dead. He will resuscitate their physical body, but guess what? They will die again. Jesus is, is unlike that. The Jesus is, is the first true resurrection. And you can even see it as it's being described here. Think about the way that Jesus resurrects Lazarus. This is in John 11. Stone's present, the stone is rolled away. Jesus with a loud and authoritative voice says, Lazarus come forth and Lazarus comes walking out of the grave. But it says in the scriptures that the man who had died, he came out and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips. His face was still wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus had to say to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus is unlike this. Jesus' grave linens, they're still laying there. They're laying there in an orderly fashion. They're not ripped to shreds. They're not, they're not, they're not unbound and then wadded up. They're laying there in a way as if, as if Jesus' body simply passed through them, passed through the grave clothes. The face cloth is a separate piece. It's been folded up neatly and now left lying in the tomb. And what this shows us is that Jesus' body is a real body and yet it is a glorified body. As I said earlier, he's not a ghost, he's not a spirit, but it is a glorified body. He can now pass through his grave clothes. He can even pass through walls as we'll see here. Now for some that'll trip us up. We'll think, well, he must be a ghost. No, it's a glorified body. It's unlike anything you and I have seen. Something we have to use our, our, our theologically informed minds to wrap our minds around because it's still a body. Jesus will say to Thomas, Thomas, touch me. Stick your hand, and we'll get there in John 21. Stick your hand into my side where they've pierced it with the, with the spear. Jesus will cook fish. I mean, have you ever seen a ghost cook fish? It doesn't happen like it. Jesus on, a, uh, on John 21 again, he will cook fish for his people, for his disciples. He will bodily ascend to heaven. They see this and he will bodily come again. That the son of God will always, the second person of the Trinity will always have a bodily existence. This is important because you and I, we too will receive a glorified body. We will exist eternally with God, not as disembodied souls, certainly not as ghosts, certainly not as angels in diapers with wings, praise the Lord, right? But you and I, we will exist eternally with, with a body with noses and faces and arms and legs that are similar to what we have now. I really think that's what he's teaching. It's really the point of a glorified body that we'll receive. Now, the glory of this, and we'll get there a little further, this body that we receive will not waste away. It will not decay like our bodies do now. And all the saints with bad knees said, praise the Lord. That's your chance, praise the Lord, right? All of those of you with lower back issues, we get to say, praise the Lord. And that's what we're waiting on. Number one was that Jesus had a unique bodily resurrection that will not be all that unique in the future as we too will receive a bodily resurrection. Number two, Jesus had a Trinitarian resurrection. I know for some this trips you up, but this is just theological truth that we worship one God in three persons. 
one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all three are active in the resurrection and at the resurrection. That the Father, the first person, the, the Godhead, the Father is the one who wills it. He works it. He does the raising. Jesus, the Son, the second person, is the one who is being raised. And it is the Spirit. The Spirit is the means by which the Father uses in order to raise Jesus from the dead. So the Father wills it and works it and does the raising. It's the Son who is being raised. How is he doing it? Well, he's doing it through the Spirit. We see that in Romans, the eighth chapter in the 11th verse. Again, that's, not, that's important for us theologically, but it's also important for us with the implications of what that means for our lives. And we'll see that in this text. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. See that? If the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Who's the one? It's the Father that's raising him by the power of the Spirit. If that Spirit, if the Holy Spirit now dwells in you, believer, then he who raised Christ Jesus will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same power that resurrects Jesus, Jesus from the dead, that same power, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you if you are a believer. Do you feel that? When you get up in the morning, do you feel like a spirit-empowered believer, a conqueror, that's what he says. That's why we're conquerors because Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus has conquered the tomb. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered Satan. And you and I, we are conquerors in him. And that same conquering power, it rests and it abides and it, it dwells inside of you. That's what he's getting at. The same father that is willed, it's the same father who releases the spirit. The Jesus, when he ascends on high, we, Jesus ascends into the clouds and then what happens to Jesus? Well, Acts 2, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit that comes to fill the believers and to resurrect them from the dead. It's the Father that raises Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get a glimpse of our own spiritual resurrections. They parallel the resurrection of Jesus. The God, the Father, he raises us through the power of the Spirit and he will do that again. He will resurrect us from the dead and give us a glorified body. Number three, Jesus had a first fruits resurrection of, a, of ours to come. That's what Paul uses. The picture of it is, is it a first fruits? That's an agricultural term. Those of you that have ever tried to raise a, a garden, you probably understand this principle. I remember one year that uh, Luann and I raised a small, what we call like a salsa garden. We had a little bit of tomatoes and we had some uh, jalapeno peppers. And I don't know, that was about it. We were going to buy the onions, right? To make the salsa and the cilantro. And we had that. And it was like exciting because you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. You plant these plants and you water them and you fertilize them. And you do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden they you know, a pepper forms and you get so excited, a little tomato forms. You're like, oh, we got tomatoes. You know, it's like, you know, kids again, right? He's like, oh gosh, we're so excited. And then they grow and you pick like the first day you get your tomato and it's ripe and you pick it off. And then the second day you get one or two tomatoes. And then all of a sudden you got tomatoes running out your ears, right? Two weeks in, you got tomatoes and, and peppers running out your ears. I remember like, at first we're like making salsa. I'm like, I'm sick of making salsa. We're done with it, you know? We didn't know how to can. Like, I know some of y'all in here know that, but we don't know how to do that. So it was like, we're sick of salsa. We're done with it. And I just mowed over the garden, right? <laughs> what happened in the beginning with those first fruits, that's the first fruits. 
And the first fruits points to a harvest that will come later. The first fruits, one or two, a harvest of coming out your ears. And Jesus is the first fruits of a resurrection. He's the first one of a harvest that will happen later. That's those of us who believe in Jesus. Those of us who trust in him. You and I, we will receive not just a spiritual resurrection, but you and I will receive to a glorified resurrection like Jesus. If you have your Bible still out, I want to show this to you in 2 Corinthians. We'll kind of end our time there. But in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, it's a text of scripture I really think you'll want to look at. Let me get my glasses out since I want to look at it too. He says this, and we'll look at the first five verses. We could look at the whole thing, but we won't. We'll just look at the first five verses. The Apostle Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. So what he's doing here is he's doing a comparison. He's using an illustration that he's going to use uh, as a comparison. The illustration is a tent and a building. Two very different structures. You could stay in both of them. You can camp out in both of them. You can live in both of them. But they're two very different structures. But we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, he's saying, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, I know there's some of you here um, that love to camp, and I'm not passing judgment on you if you love to camp. Um, but like growing up, we camped some. We never camped in tents. We had a little pop-up camper. And that pop-up camper, it, was, um, it, it almost got flipped over by a tornado one time. Um, it suffered some severe hail damage. That pop-up camper that we owned, it leaked like a sieve, right? So every time it rained, we uh, had to put on a poncho and sleep in a poncho. It was prone to mosquitoes. It was so uh, holes in it and whatever that one time we actually uh, camped. And for some reason, the campgrounds that were really expensive were up on high ground, but the campgrounds that were in the swamps in Florida, you can get really, really cheap. And my dad, um, being a Dave Ramsey fan long before, or a cheapskate, uh, being a Dave Ramsey fan long before that, that's where we camped out. And in fact, we stopped and we asked a person, are there mosquitoes here? The problem was this guy didn't speak any English. And so I don't know what he thought, but he thought we were talking about eagles. Maybe he thought we were talking about alligators, but he said, no, 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 very small. That's what he said, very small mosquitoes. So we thought very small meant very small in, in, in quantity, right? There wasn't very many, even though we're in the Everglades, right? But we set up camp that night, and I'll never forget it. In the middle of the night, I hear my dad say, kids, the tent, the camper is full of mosquitoes. Whatever you do, don't come out. Stay underneath of them. And this guy, come to find out, was from Canada. And in comparison, the mosquitoes in Canada, you can ride on, you can saddle them and ride on their backs. So comparatively, they were very small, just not very small in quantity, like we thought they were a plethora of mosquitoes down there. In fact, that's what we did for fun the rest of the trip was we sat around and we counted our mosquito bites from that night. That's a true story. That's what it's like living in a tent. Now, again, some of you enjoy it. 
But let's just be honest, it's not as nice and it's not as plush as living in your home. The whole time you're camped out in your tent, probably if you're anything like me, you're thinking about home. If you're sleeping on the ground and you get cold, you're thinking about that old warm bed, right? You're thinking about a house that can stand winds, a house that can stand storms, a house that does not leak. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is all of our bodies, they're just tents. Now, maybe you got a pop-up camper. I don't know. Pastor Frank's got a pop-up camper, right? His body just keeps going and going and going. It seems like age just doesn't affect him. Got a pop-up, got something nice, but it's still nothing in comparison to the house that's waiting for us in heaven. This is what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know that, as I've already said, this outward body, it's wasting away, but inwardly, those of us who are saved, we're being renewed day by day. And there's coming a day, there's coming a time that even though this body is weak and this body is fragile, there's coming a time for those of us who believe and trust in Jesus that you and I, we will receive a strong and eternal body. We will sing a, a strong and eternal, something that's from God, that's not been made by human hands, something that's been made by God, that's not been cursed, not been bruised by this fall, something that is from him that we await. That's our hope. And when, some, when the doctor walks into the room and tells you I got bad news and then gives you bad news, you can, in that moment, you can hope by God's grace for chemo. You can hope for a miraculous healing. You can hope for all those things. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing with, wrong with praying and asking God to heal you. And we'll join with you in praying. But your ultimate hope is in a house. It's not been made with hands a house and a building that will last and dwell for eternity for those of us who's lost loved ones, who buried loved ones, loved ones who believed and trusted and died in their faith. That's the way the scriptures talk about it. They died in faith. They died believing. They died, wait, they died hoping. They died trusting. We have a great word of assurance this morning because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead because death could not hold him, that death cannot, because our loved ones was united to him, death could not hold our loved ones either. Where are they today? Well, they're not angels, right? They're not angels. They're not in a holding pen. They're not still in the ground. They're not in any of those places. Where are they? They are present with the Lord Jesus. That's where they are. They're with him, worshiping him, loving him. And I, I think even now they've got real hands and real arms and real eyes and real things and real tongues that they use to sing to him and they're doing stuff and they're having fun. They're having fun. They're not missing out on anything. Like sometimes it's, it's difficult when you think about what's going on down here and you think about your loved ones and you think, gosh, they're missing out. They're missing out on seeing my kids. They're missing out on seeing this marriage. They're missing out. They're not missing out on anything. We're the ones who are missing out. We're the ones that are missing out. And a beautiful truth. That's a good news. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just, oh, it's banked upon a real historical fact. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what it's banked on. Because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Paul will say that death no longer has a sting. Gosh, the sting of death has been taken from it. Lastly, number four. In Jesus, believers are already spiritually resurrected. We'll receive a bodily glorified resurrection in the future. 
But you and I, we have already been spiritually resurrected. In that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, He who has prepared us for this very thing, this future home that's been made without hands, he who has prepared us for this very thing, it's God who's done it. And look, he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How do I know it? How do I know? Well, he's given you his spirit as a guarantee. He's put a a deposit down on you to say, I'm going to take you here because he's given you the spirit that the resurrection is not only a future event for believers. There's coming a bodily resurrection where we'll receive glorified resurrected bodies, but that is in the future. And in the now, you and I have received the Holy Spirit that brings about a spiritual resurrection in us. As I said, Jesus resurrects on the first day of the week because he is resurrecting and creating a new creation. That's later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, united to Christ, your faith unites you to Christ. Your faith unites you to the Christ in the same way that a a branch is united to a vine, in the same way that a head is united to a body, in the same way that bricks are united to the foundation. Your faith in Christ has united you to Christ. And because of that union, you are a new creation. Paul says, the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Well, if it's not come in our bodies, we don't receive new bodies, where has it come? Well, it's come in your souls. It's come on the inside of you. It's what all the way back in the gospel of John and John the third chapter, when Nicodemus came to John, or came to Jesus and Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It is that experience that the spirit does that resurrects us spiritually. That makes us, somebody riding a weed eater. Did y'all hear that? It'd be a rough way to get to work. But the spirit that makes us new, it makes us alive in Christ and to Christ. He raises us to walk in newness of life. That's Romans chapter six. Through the Spirit, it gives us the mind of Christ. That's Philippians 2. In Romans 8, it says that in this new life, we're alive to God relationally, that where there was animosity and rebellion, the mind that was set on the flesh, it was hostile to God. It did not submit to God's law. Indeed, it could not submit to God's law. So God does a work of removing that hostile fleshly mind and fills us with a new new law, fills us with a new spirit, his spirit, and that spirit brings peace. Not just peace as in we're no longer at war, but peace in the fact that we're in cooperation. We're in cooperation in the form of love and delight. It's a willingness to follow. That God changes our taste buds. That what used to taste bitter now tastes sweet. It's all because of the work of the Spirit. That he makes us new so that we might follow him, love him, enjoy him, worship him, live for him, delight in him. And this is what it means to be a part of his new creation, to be new in him, to serve him, to love him, to live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the work that you've done. Father, thank you for the work that you did in that garden that day when you resurrected your son from the dead as the first fruits of our own resurrection. That as we see that as a powerful display of who you are, a powerful display of your love for us, a powerful display of your resurrecting power, may we know that that same power works through your spirit to work in us and may he resurrect us from the dead. 
Father, my prayer is for those who have yet to experience that, that you would, by your power, resurrect them even today from their deadness. That as Paul writes in Ephesians, the second chapter, that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. There are some here this morning that may still be dead in their trespasses and their sins. And by your power, would you resurrect them? By your power, would you open their eyes? By your power, would you give them new hearts? By your power, would you cause them to understand you and to know you and to believe in you and to trust in you and to bow before you? By your power, would you do that, Lord? And then for those of us in this room, Lord, as a song that we sing so often, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God that we love. Lord, may the power of the Spirit hold us. May moments of worship and moments of reflection and moments of, uh, of, of just the very gifts of grace that you give us as we reflect on those. Maybe, maybe moments that hold us, that, that spur us on, that engender love and submission in us. And I pray for that now. And I pray that your spirit would just bring a sense of refreshing upon all of the saints in this room. And may we desire to live for you and to love you and to delight in you and to delight in your word. Lord, I know that's a prayer that I feel like in my life. I've prayed a hundred times, a hundred times, Lord, I prayed, Lord, I I don't want to have a cold, hard heart towards you, but I want my heart to be alive because of the work of the Spirit. Enliven it. Cause my soul, revive my soul. Cause it to be alive. That I may love you with true affections. That I may follow you, may follow your law, may live it out with just some desires for obedience. You said you'd resurrect us to newness of life. And we pray for that, that our walk would be new as we love you and we love our neighbors, that we would serve you, Lord, with new diligence, that we share your gospel as we live holy lives before you, Lord. And may the next few minutes, may they all work to those ends. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.